0: well hello again Um, I'm really excited about this series that we're in when humans collide Uh, because for me this is actually a pretty personal series Uh, if you know me a little bit you you probably know that I'm actually a relatively smart talented creative guy I've, I've had a lot of successes in my life people keep laughing when I say that that hurts But here's my actual point. My point is that all of the successes I've had in life have always felt a little bit tainted for me. Because even as things were accomplishing, every step along the way, every season, it just always felt like I was rubbing people the wrong way around me. And so even though I was objectively winning, I was accomplishing, it never came with joy or peace with people around me. We'd be in a meeting, and I'd be the one with the right answer in the room, but, it, but it, no one else in the room seemed particularly pleased that I was the one with the right answer. They weren't excited about what I was proposing or the fact that I had a solution that was going to solve all of our problems. And what I've come to realize is that the, the problem for me that whole time, even as, again, I was succeeding, I was capable, I was doing a lot of things, was I did not know how to disagree with people well. I didn't know how to let someone have a different opinion without using my superior skills and abilities and smartness or whatever to, to overwhelm them, to, to prove to them that I was right. And that even as I was succeeding at other things, I was leaving a wake of broken relationships behind me. And so uh, I've been on a personal journey the last three years or so of just really trying to, to get better at that, to figure out what I, could, what I could do to be better. And this series is in many ways the fruition of a lot of that work. And and these are things, the the steps of this series, Women's Collider, things that Dion, Garrett, and I have been learning the hard way, have been, been reinforcing together. And the truths of each week are things that have personally transformed my life. And I'm really hopeful that they're gonna transform your life too. So if you haven't been here uh, the first few weeks, I just want to catch us up. That Basically, these are steps to be taken, steps that we see Jesus himself doing uh, every step of the way and that, that we can learn from to change the way we con- you know, have conflict and disagreements with other people. Uh, so the first week is this idea that when there is an important area of disagreement, that we, that we have to stop avoiding it. Okay? We, we, need to, we need to face up to it. And I'll tell you, I thought I didn't have a problem with this because I had no problem publicly from a stage or, or, or politically sharing my opinion on very hard topics. But what I've realized is I sure had a problem, though, when it was my wife, when it was a, a relationship with a friend that we just kind of started growing apart, a disagreement with my parents. I, I very much avoided those and those were the ones that were uh handcuffing me that were were really short-circuiting my relationships We we have to be willing to face those things dead on uh compassionately with other people secondly we have to be intentional about the stories that we're telling ourselves in our head if we're not intentional we will default to one of three kinds of stories either victim story Villain story or hero story. And if you haven't seen that one, you should definitely uh, go back and look at Dion Garrett's uh, message on that. But we have to reframe the stories that no one's a a villain. You know, no one's trying to be a villain. No one's a victim or a hero. We're all just broken people living our lives. And the better we can reframe those stories, the more effective we'll be in helping rewrite people's stories for the better. And then thirdly, last week, this idea of defining your victory. Again, I'm a smart guy. I can out debate anyone. And I cannot count with you now today the number of debates I've won in my life and lost the relationship. And I was right, and I proved that I was right, and now we're not friends anymore. We've got to re-clarify what's the true victory state. It's not proving that you're right, it's investing healthily in the relationships that matter to you. So those are all the things we've talked about up till now. Today we're getting to the fourth step, which we're calling... Level the battlefield. All right, we're going to be looking at Luke 19 in just a moment, but before we get there, I want to just explain this phrase, uh, this uh, idea of leveling the battlefield. See, if you look at military tactics, there's a truism that's been true for as long as human beings have been fighting against each other with spears and swords and arrows and guns, which is that if you want to have a superior position in the battle, if you want to have a higher likelihood of winning, you need to have the high ground. Right? And it just makes sense. It's pretty intuitive. Uh, If you've got archers, you want to be on higher ground so that the arrows will carry farther and will inflict more damage as they go on the other army. Or if you've got cavalry and infantry, uh, horses and men can charge downhill far more powerfully and destructively than they can slog uphill towards an enemy. Even in more recent history, when you look at our own Civil War, uh, one of the pivotal battles, the Battle of Gettysburg, was defined by the two sides jockeying and positioning for high ground position. Because the ability to have the high ground meant that your cannons and your rifles could travel farther and do more damage to the other army. And this philosophy, this uh, this, uh, axiom is so true that it's kind of trickled over into then human conflict. If this is what works for military conflict, then we're just talking interpersonal conflict. This must be true as well. And we've kind of blindly adapted, adopted this uh, expression in the way we interact with others. And we talk about we need to have the moral high ground. And we talk about this all sorts of different ways. We talk about taking the high road. Or in a conversation or an argument, you talk about I have the upper hand. Or even when we're we're really comparing ourselves to others, well, I'm the one who's above reproach. All of our language exposes this truth that we have adopted a military strategy, that we have the high ground. And that person who disagrees with me, who believes differently than me, who has a different outcome than mine, uh, who's just hurt my feelings, whatever it is, I have the high ground and they have the low ground. But here's the problem as I was thinking about this this week. In military strategy, what is the goal of having the high ground? To destroy the other army. It's what you're doing. And when we just kind of transplant that over into our human interactions and we use a military tactic that's designed to destroy armies, guess what we're doing to other people when we have the high ground in our conflict with them? The intention is to destroy. That's what the tactic does. And I don't know about you, I, I don't actually want to destroy people. That's not a goal of mine. Uh, I don't want my wife or my friends or my coworkers or my kids to know their place and to know that I'm the one that's better than them and, and I trample over them in some sort of uh, fight for the truth. I, I don't want to destroy people. And so it's forced me to grapple with this question. It's a question I want to ask you now right here. I want you to think back on a moment, maybe recently, maybe farther back in your own personal history, a moment where you've been in a position where someone else was wrong and you were right. And you were trying to have uh, some sort of productive engagement on that. You wanted to persuade them that they were wrong. You wanted to fix a a broken behavior. And so here's my question. In that moment, in that interaction... Of your having the moral high ground compared to that person did your having the moral high ground result in resolving that argument peacefully and harmoniously has having the moral high ground ever corrected a sinner in his path has the moral high ground ever saved a relationship that was kind of drifting apart has having the moral high ground ever transformed someone else's life for the better now, just from the way I'm asking it, I'm, I'm sure you can guess what my answer is, but, but maybe even flip the question around for yourself. Has there ever been a moment where someone else had the moral high ground over you, where you were the one who made the mistake, you were the one who hurt someone else's feelings, you had a wrong belief? And I just want you to, to think, did their having the moral high ground over you, did that make you feel open to their arguments? softer-hearted towards them excited to move forward in their right way of being compared to yours or did it make you feel entrenched defensive shut down so as we wrestle with this question jesus is going to engage with it directly so i want to look now at luke 19 and see how jesus would have answered this question of whether having the moral high ground has ever resulted in the transformation of another person's life. Let's look at Luke 19. Jesus is just doing his thing, doing the kind of ministry he was famous for, preaching wise sermons, doing miracles, healing people. All right, and he happens to enter Jericho and he was just passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus and he was a chief tax collector. He was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Now, as we engage with this story, I want to do one thing first. I want to uncute this story, because if you're anything like me, I grew up hearing this story in very cute ways. This story is a camp song to me. A camp song was Zacchaeus is a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and it's oh, it's so cute, so lovely. Um, I grew up reading the story in picture bibles because we love putting this story in kids bibles because it's just such a great illustration like oh look at that cute little guy and he's up in the tree trying to see jesus how silly and we make this a fun cute story and i want to make sure that before we go any further you understand this is not a cute story and zacchaeus is not a cute wee little man he's evil When it says in there that he was the chief tax collector you can read between the lines there that means he was the most corrupt of the tax collectors already a corrupt profession he was a man who used his wealth to abuse others if Zacchaeus were around today Zacchaeus would be the kind of kind of man who who owned was a landlord who owned hundreds of of houses and apartments and was evicting people during coronavirus for being laid off from their jobs Zacchaeus today would be a millionaire who owns a billion-dollar business that got PPP bailout funds from the government and then still laid off all his workers. Zacchaeus would be the corrupt cop who takes advantage of civic forfeiture laws to steal from citizens who committed no crimes. If you knew a Zacchaeus today, you would despise him. He would be against everything you stand for And when it comes to moral high ground, he would be the lowest of the low. You would cheer to see him humbled and and punished for his crimes. All right? So this is not a cute story about a wee little guy in a tree. This is a man who's evil and who needs some sort of comeuppance for that evil. So let's look at what Jesus does. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so he came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. Here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, if you're paying attention to this story, you maybe have noticed what I've noticed, which is that this story makes no sense. This is a bonkers story, right? You've got this guy who's as corrupt as could be the lowest of low ground. And now here comes Jesus, the high ground savior of the world, And if I'm predicting how this story goes, or if I'm just modeling how it goes based on how the church uh, and my own experience tends to operate, what I believe needs to happen in this moment is that the high ground uh, teacher, uh, God-made man needs to now call out, convict, condemn, uh, correct, lecture this low ground guy, and make sure that it's clear to him and to all the world how wrong he is. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. So that's the first thing that's weird. But then the second thing is that Zacchaeus's response to this very innocuous gesture of just inviting yourself over for lunch, his response is to instantly repent of all the stuff he's been doing for years. And that he's never had any sort of urge to stop before this he he wasn't he wasn't feeling bad about it anytime before but this lunch invitation had this result that that he's now instantly repented of everything and for me and my robot brain this does not compute a and b do not lead to c like what did what is it about what jesus said that remotely got zacchaeus to to act the way he responded in this moment this story has never made sense to me Uh, except in this kind of vague way of, well, I guess God does things that don't make sense and it all works out because he's God. Until I got this language of leveling the battlefield, until I started thinking about how having the high ground has not actually been as helpful of a tactic for me as I would like to think it was. Because after all, if here's Jesus able to respond to this man, not with condemnation or lectures or arguing, privileging his own high ground position, but he's willing to level the battlefield by just simply saying, Hey, I'm going to be a guest at your house. I'm going to share your food. That act is far more powerful than I'd ever realized before. And the more I think about it, the more I've come to realize how true this is again, this is God. This is how wise God's wisdom is. There's something powerful in this moment, but it's not just this one moment that Jesus does. That's so powerful. This is literally his entire reason for being. Let me show you. See, there's an ancient hymn that Paul, a man named Paul wrote down 2000 years ago and shared with the church in Corinth. He was giving them advice about how to interact with each other. And he said this, he said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And now he quotes this hymn. And I hear what it says. Who being in very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, tactical advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to death, even a shameful death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Amen. Here's what's so powerful about this. Jesus didn't just level the battlefield for one jerk in Jericho one time. It's literally what he's done for all of humanity, you and me right now he had the literal moral divine high ground by being up in heaven where he could look down in all of his holiness and all of his perfection and he could if he wanted scorn and scoff at us broken low ground human beings look at them with all their murdering and their stealing and their lying and all the ways that they screw up their lives and yet he chose to come down not just level the battlefield, but to walk that battlefield with us, giving himself human feet so that he could step in the same dust and the same complications that we live in every day. And by doing that, by not just privileging his own high position, taking tactical advantage, he achieved a victory that was far greater than just simply um, reveling in his own superiority. He saved humanity. I think for myself, one of the reasons why I'm so reticent to give up the high ground is I'm afraid that I would lose something. I'm afraid that if I had to admit fault or that I didn't have all the answers or that maybe this person had something to contribute uh, positively to this conversation or this conflict, that, that I'd, it would mean I might lose the argument. And yet what we see here is that, is that Jesus willingly chose to lose even unto death, and yet it gave him a victory because he won life for everyone. And if that's true for Jesus, then maybe I don't have to be so scared of putting myself in a level position with someone else. Maybe I don't have to be scared of getting out of the fortifications of my high ground morality, and I can just walk with people. And maybe there'll be a greater victory for me as well. And while we're talking about victory, let's define the victory as Dion Garrett told us yesterday. See, that's not the end of the Zacchaeus story. Jesus explained what he was doing and why he was doing it. Here's how that story wraps up. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too, as evil and corrupt as he is, is a son of Abraham. And for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was willing to get low for the sake of saving everybody. Which means that we who follow Jesus, we have to take the same mindset, the same tactical approach. We have to stop privileging the high ground if we want to actually reach the people we care about, fix arguments, transform their wrongness for the better. So we've gotta ask ourselves, if Jesus is willing to give up his own high ground for the sake of saving humanity, are we willing to give up the high ground to reach people in powerful transformative ways? Or are we stuck in a high ground mentality? And I'll tell you, as I've wrestled for the last several years, but especially this week, I've noticed how in most of my relationships, I'm stuck in a high ground mentality. That I just, by the nature of the beast, I think my motives are good, I think my ideas are right, and I think other people's motives are less good and their ideas are less right. It's just natural. And so how do I tell if I'm stuck in a high ground mentality? Because if I am, the reality is we will not be effective in our relationships. We will not be effective for the kingdom of God. And so I came up, as I was looking at the Zacchaeus story and trying to parse it for some, some principles to apply, I came up with a few filtering questions that will help me recognize when I'm stuck in a high ground mentality. Because ultimately, the high ground is incompatible with respecting another person, right? That's ultimately what Jesus did when he invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. He was showing respect. He was saying, you're someone who's worthy of my honor, worthy for me to share food and a meal and a home with you. And so here are some questions I noticed from the story that I've been asking myself and I want you to ask yourself as you're thinking about people that you're in conflict or disagreement with. And so the first question is, am I willing to spend time with this person? And I'll tell you, since I started asking this question, I've had way fewer arguments, especially online. Because I'm scrolling through the Facebook feed and I'm seeing someone who's posted something that's so bonkers and wrong and harmful. You know, everyone, and quoting this doctor, quoting that doctor, all these things. And I'm like, oh, you're so wrong. I need to, oh, I, I, I gotta tell you how wrong you are. And then I stop and I say, would I be willing to just call this person and spend 30 minutes on the phone with them, just asking how their day is, just checking in with them? Would I be willing to have this person over for socially distanced drinks on the patio? And if the answer is no, then I'm stuck in a high ground mentality. And if I'm a follower of Jesus, then morally, I no longer have anything to say to this person. Right? Because Jesus was willing to spend time with a corrupt tax collector like Zacchaeus. And if I'm not willing to spend time, then I've now actually lost the moral high ground because I don't value them enough spares me so much arguments uh, also lowers my blood pressure because i just move right on i see the facebook feed i don't want to call you we're moving we're done all right but now the next level next level down if, if it's someone i would be willing to spend time with would i be willing to admit fault to this person would i would i apologize to them if i wrong them would i admit my own weaknesses or or, or maybe my own insecure position to them And I'll tell you this, this is my theory for why I think Christian evangelism and apologetics has been such a failure for the last 50 years in our country. Because if you've been paying attention, if you've read any of the books, the whole outlook, the whole approach is high ground mentality the way you're supposed to persuade people of the Christian faith? The way you're supposed to argue uh, for the Bible and God and truth and Jesus is you're supposed to have all the right answers. You're supposed to be Bible answer guy. You're supposed to have read all the case for faith books by Lee Strobel, or whoever else it is. And then when you go into an, uh, an argument with an unbeliever, you've got the right answers, and all their answers are wrong. And if they bring up something that you don't know, you have to deny, deflect, because you have the complete story and they don't. And nowhere in this approach is there room uh, to show respect for this other person and to say, you know what, I haven't thought of that point you made. Maybe I don't have all the answers. This is re- it's really interesting and it's good to think about and I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, yeah, this is something I don't know and I can admit that to you. And I think if we were willing to recognize this high ground mentality in our witnessing and our apologetics, we would have a lot more success because we'd actually be willing to, to humbly get out of this um, mentality to show respect toward the people because they can tell when you're in a high ground mentality. They, you know how it feels to have someone not respect you, lord their position over you. They can tell where we are. We gotta get rid of this. So again, if you can answer yes to this, then you can keep moving. But if it's a no, if I wouldn't be willing to admit my, my incomplete beliefs or, or I don't have all the answers, then move on. You, you can't, you have nothing powerful or transformative to say to this person. And then the final question that's been helpful for me is, am I curious about their desires or their fears? And I'll give you an example on this one for my wife. I, um, I have a lot of conflict with my wife, partly because I spend the bulk of my time with my wife, especially since COVID hit. Like we are, we are prisoners of war together, my wife and I, uh, stuck in the house with our children. And so here's the thing. First two questions are easy right? Am I willing to spend time with my wife? Yes. I love her more than anybody. I'm absolutely willing to spend time with her. Would I admit fault to this person? Yes. Pretty much every day I apologize for something. But then here's what I've been noticing. But in a moment of disagreement, in a moment of arguing, I am no longer curious about my wife. Does that make sense? In general, I'm very curious about her. I'm intrigued by her. I think she's so interesting and fascinating. But in a moment of, of conflict, I lose my curiosity. Just to give you an example, we have, we have two designated spots on the driveway. The spot where I park my car and the spot where she parks her car. And I cannot tell you how many times I come home and her car is in my spot. And in that moment, I'm just being honest, I'm not curious as to Why? Her car's in my spot. I'm just upset. I'm mad. I'm put out that my spot's been taken, right? I've lost curiosity for my wife. But here's the thing. If you, get, if you can get through this list, it's really helpful because A, it eliminates a lot of arguments before they've even started. Because if we're going to follow in Jesus' footsteps, we answer no to any of these questions, then I'm just done. I don't have to argue with them. I don't have to care about them because I clearly don't care about them enough to spend time or apologize or be curious. So I just move on. It's great for eliminating needless arguments. But if you do get yes through all of these, this changes the way we have conflict so powerfully, so transformatively, and it's such a better way to go through life. So just to speak of my wife again, if I can answer all three of these in the yes, it changes so much of how we interact. Uh, For example, um, and it changes, sorry, before I get there, it changes the way I understand right and wrong and morality. It gives me a new way to approach the rightness or wrongness of a situation that's not my being the right one on the high ground and them being the wrong one. So now let me give you some examples. So speaking of my wife, I believe that it is right. I believe that it is biblical that wives should submit to their husbands. And so it would be really easy and maybe even natural for me when in a moment of conflict and disagreement with my wife saying, hey, you know what? It's a bummer that we disagree. But as you might recall, the Bible says, you need to do what I say, woman. And you add the woman at the end, it really, really gets it home, right? Now, now here's the thing. It's, It's theologically true and right that a wife should submit to her husband. I do agree with this. In that moment, though, where I have leveraged that against her as a weapon, I have sinned against my wife. Because in that moment, I'm no longer curious about what's going on with her. I'm no longer willing to sacrificially serve her and try and figure out if there's a way that I can make things better for her in a disagreement. I have decided to leverage my high ground position and coerce her into doing something that I know she doesn't want to do. See, and now suddenly I have a much better filter for how to engage with my wife in a way that's loving and positive and sacrificial. It's not about the right or wrong of submission. It's about, am I stuck in a high ground mentality? Let me give you another example. I grew up hearing that that it is a very, um, kids need to obey their parents. And so therefore is a perfectly reasonable thing for a parent to say to their child, because I said so. I got that answer so many times growing up. And here's the thing, I believe that's true. I believe that children should be obedient to their parents. I believe that parents should have authority to to make things for their children. But notice what you're doing. Anytime a parent says those words, because I said so, you have invoked high ground tactics. You've communicated to your child, your desires, your fears, they don't matter anymore, just do what I said. And you might win that battle, but it comes at the cost of your loving connection with your children. Because what they've learned is that they need to be obedient, yes, they've also learned that you will leverage strong-arm tactics against them rather than care about their needs. My wife's coached me with this hugely with our kids, you know, so it'll be bedtime and I'll say, all right, it's time for bed, and my son will say, ah, but I'm still playing my game, I want to finish my game, and I'm I'm sitting here thinking, well, you just need to obey me, you just need to obey, you you know, why is it after bedtime now? And the answer is, because I said so. But what I've tried to start doing, what my wife has modeled for me is in that moment, I just say, well, what's going on, bud? Why don't you want to go to bed? And say, well, because my sister's got more turns than I do. They got more time. And I I can say, oh, that sounds really unfair. I'm really sorry to hear that your sister's got more time. How about this? What if tomorrow I made sure you got first turn on the iPad? Would that make you feel better? Oh yeah, daddy, that'd make me feel so much better. Okay, great. I can commit that to you, bud. You ready to go to bed now? Yeah, dad, I'm ready for bed. Same end result, the right or wrong doesn't change. Does he need to obey me? Yes, but by, by leveling the battlefield, I've taken this moment that could have been conflict and disconnection and I've turned it into a moment where my son learns all the more that I value his fears and that I take them seriously and I work to help him. One more personal example. Uh, I've, I've On a podcast, and I was on a podcast with a friend of mine and my friend shared on this podcast uh, her theological position which just, by the way, is at odds with our own denomination's theological stance on this issue. And in that moment, thinking about seeding the high ground, leveling the battlefield, I chose to be curious about her thoughts on this matter. I know what our faith's stance is. I know what the Bible says about it, but I wanted to hear more about her thoughts, why she felt this position was, uh, was, was her stance, why she differed from what, what I think the Bible says. And I've had some people get really upset with me about that uh, because they say, no, no, you should have corrected her right there on the spot. She said something that was against the Bible and you should have put her in her place. And what I say to that is, then I would have been violating the very approach that Jesus took. I would have taken something that was a friendly, respectful conversation of peers and I would have suddenly put on the high ground moral pastor hat And I would have corrected her and she would have felt ashamed, unvalued. Maybe I would have taken a stand for the truth, but but mostly what I would have done is I would have hurt a relationship and I would have violated this very tactic that Jesus models for us. But instead, as a result, we had a very thoughtful conversation. I thought about this issue from angles that I've never thought about it before. And and I found new ways to try to grapple with it myself. It made me a better theologian by listening to her, giving her respect, hearing what she had to say. And I was so grateful to hear that perspective from her. So here's, what's amazing is that if we do this, we can transform all of our relationships, not even when there's necessarily conflict, but just in general, because suddenly we can have a whole different tenor to every interaction with every other human being. It makes them all better. And one of the things that's helped me do this practically uh, is a book by a man named Chris Voss. It's called Never Split the Difference. And if you haven't heard of him, he was the chief negotiator for all of the FBI. All right, so this guy, he's negotiated with terrorists and kidnappers and bank robbers and all, all sorts of um, seamy individuals. And he's written a book about his experience. And as I read the book, what was so amazing was I kind of went into it thinking I was going to hear kind of a bravado, macho, soldier of fortune kind of a thing. Every page of this guy's book I read, I, I, I said, this matches what Jesus did. This guy who's negotiating with terrorists, he's using principles that match the way Jesus interacted with people like Zacchaeus. And this book has been blowing my mind. I highly recommend it to anyone, but I wanna share this quote with you from the book. He says, when you're in a moment of conflict and he's in conflict, right? They've got a hostage and he's trying to save the hostage. That's conflict. But this guy says, negotiation is not an act of battle. It's a process of discovery. The goal is to uncover as much information about the other party party as possible. And this is what's huge to me. This guy is negotiating with some of the worst people, people with guns, people who have done violent things. And he himself says, we've got to resist this military tactic approach. We've got to get away from high ground, low ground, you know, uh, coercion. He says, you've got to treat it like an um, opportunity for curiosity to learn more about the person that you're, trying, that you're having this disagreement with. And so he gives four tips that I wanna share with you today. If you wanna see your relationships change, your, your conflict get better, here are four tips from Chris Voss, tips that I'll just confess I still struggle with myself and I, I'd wrestle with how to apply them better in my own life. But I wanna share them with you in the hopes that maybe this will help you change some of the ways you handle conflict. So the first tip is to calibrate your questions. We tend naturally to ask why questions. And the thing about why questions is they put the other person on the defensive. And what Chris Voss says is you need to ask what questions or how questions, because those are curious questions. What and how invites someone to share with you more. And then from there, once you've asked what and how questions, now you mirror their sentence, which is a very simple technique. It's just simply whatever they say to you, you take the last three words and you say them back. That's it. You don't have to put a spin on them or rephrase them, paraphrase anything. No, no, no. Just the last three words, say them right back to the person, which will then invite them to expand more. And as they expand more, you're looking for their feeling, their emotions. And then you're invited to say, it seems like you're blank. And then throw in an emotion. You're angry, you're upset, you're sad, you're tired, whatever it might be. And what's amazing about this step is you don't even have to get the emotion right. You can label the emotion wrong, and it's going to be just as powerful, just as effective uh, in helping resolve this, this conflict in a positive, harmonious way. And then finally, this one's, this one's the really hard one. I, I struggle mightily with this, invite the no. So much of conflict is us trying to enforce our yes on another person. You need to admit that I'm right. You need to admit that, that I'm doing the right thing. You need to admit that you're wrong. You're forcing my yes on, on the other person and instead to invite their no to give them the respect of autonomy to let them say no to something that you value and that these four tactics when, when put together will actually shift your conflict from destructive military uh you know uh, destroying the relationship and will actually make them harmonious and positive So let me give you one, one quick example going through these, uh, just to help you see how, how to apply this. So I already brought it up. My wife and I were having conflict over where she parks in the driveway, right? So here we go. We come in and I'm hot and I come into the house because I've had to park in the wrong spot and I come and I say, why did you park in my spot? Nope, nope, nope. Calibrate the questions. What questions, how questions, what were you thinking parking in my spot? No, that's, that's probably not, that's not, um, how how were you trying to park today? What what was going on today uh, as you were driving around doing errands? I'm asking her questions that invite her to engage. And then as I ask that a what question, I say, you know, so you say, what, what was helpful for how you were parking today, then I'm looking for an opportunity to mirror their sentence. And she says, oh, it was a crazy day. I had to take the kids here and I had to get this errand done. And then we went there, but then Ember couldn't find her mask. And so then we couldn't go in uh, the, the story and, and all of these things. And, and I just got to the end. I just got here and I wasn't even thinking about where to park. Where to park? Yeah. You know, I just, I have so many things on my mind right now, but, right? There was no judgment there i just simply mirrored back what she said and then as i did that and it invited her to go on farther she starts saying yeah and then and then this was happening today and this was happening today and now i take a stab at it and i say well it, it it sounds like you're really upset and i'll give you a hint i was wrong on that one she wasn't upset no it's not that i'm upset it's just that i'm just exhausted i'm trying to keep all of these plates in the air and i'm trying to remember this thing and that and i'm just too exhausted at the end of the day to remember which spot i'm supposed to park in And now suddenly my sympathy is triggered. Now I'm, I'm hearing, I'm hearing what, what's going on in her. I, I, we, we've, I've tried to label her feelings, I got it wrong, but then she's told me the right one. And now this is where it gets hard. And now you carefully invite the no question. I just simply ask, how would you like to handle, or no, um, would you like to park differently? Would you like to change which spot is your spot? And I know she doesn't because we've agreed on these spots for a reason. There's a reason why the cars fit better in the driveway. But when I give her the opportunity, I just say, would you like to change how we park? And she can say, no, 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 I don't want to change. It's the right place to park. But you know what, Doug, just at the end of the day, sometimes I don't remember. And and it would just really help me if you could just in those moments just move the car for me. By inviting the no, I gave her an opportunity to, to gain her own autonomy back and then to ask me for help. And here's what's amazing about this moment. If that's how that conversation, that that conflict went, did I technically win the argument? I mean, not really. She's still probably gonna park there a a lot. But but when you look at, at the bigger picture, did I take this moment of conflict and stress on myself and did it become a moment where I helped my wife feel more heard and understood by me? Was I able to change my own attitude and actually serve my wife better than I've served her before? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I had to spend a day figuring out how to do all those things right. This does not come easy. It's gonna take effort and time and maybe just start with the first one. Ultimately, guys, I mostly live here. I just try to stop asking why questions and that's where I live most of the time. But every little step that you take is a step that levels the battlefield. And what I can promise you is this, if that God himself could bridge the gap between him and you, if he could level the battlefield for the sake of deepening and strengthening his relationship with us, it's not that big of a gap for us to take a little step in ceding the high ground to someone else ourselves. And what I can promise you is just as God's humbling of himself resulted in victory of saving humanity from death, any step we take in this direction is a step in the footsteps of Jesus and is a step that I promise you will not result in you losing some status. It will result in you gaining deeper, better, healthier relationships with all of the people around you. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, I give you thanks that you who had the highest position did not cling to that, but instead lowered yourself, humbled yourself to walk the same earth we walk, to live the kind of life we live so that you could bridge the gap between us and you. Lord, I pray that right now you would help every person in this place feel the value of your love, that you would willingly humble yourself unto death for the sake of bringing each person here back into a relationship with you. And so, Lord, I now pray that your Holy Spirit would be on each of us, that you would give us the discernment, the confidence, the strength, to take that low ground position with people around us as well so that we could show transformative healing power in those relationships the same way you've shown it to us. Lord, ultimately I pray that every person here would become a peacemaker and not just an argument winner. We pray in your name, amen.